Welcome to Horses for Future. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Manda Scott, veterinarian, author, shamanic teacher, and climate crisis activist. If you are new to this podcast, we're exploring ways in which horse owners can help in the climate change crisis. Why horse owners in particular? Because as a group, we have land. You can keep your dogs, your cats in small apartments, but our horses need space, and space means land. So we're exploring ways in which we can manage our pastures, not only so we can create healthier, more biodiverse grazing for our horses, but also so we can sequester more carbon in the soil. Our interest in the microorganisms that help to create carbon-rich soil is very related to our interest in the microbes that inhabit our horse's digestive systems. Last week, Manda and I talked about Carol Hughes and her Equibiome project. And this week, we're bringing you an interview we did recently with Carol. For those of you who aren't yet familiar with her work, let me begin with her bio. Dr. Hughes has an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. She earned her doctorate in infectious diseases. She has postgrad degrees in equine science, environmental science, sustainable grassland management, and ruminant gut microbiology. Her research projects include studies on the treatments of gastric ulcers in horses and the effects of the microbiome on obesity in horses. She's the director of Superfix, Phytoorigins, and Equibiome and Petbiome. Carol's work focuses on changes that can lead to the improved health, not just for horses, but also for canines, humans, and the environment. She lives in a truly beautiful part of the world, in North Wales, in the National Park of Snowdonia. She's the owner of 25 acres of mixed upland heath, moor, woods, and meadows. And she also has a herd of Welsh mountain ponies. She's very focused on integrating her herd of Welsh ponies into a restored, biodiverse environment. She works closely with the local university on sustainability. She analyzes the plants her ponies eat, assessing the phytonutrient, vitamins, and mineral content. Equally passionate about the health of racehorses, for the past 25 years, Carol has been giving clinics in the UK's racing centers of Newmarket, Lambourne, and also in Dubai. These clinics are attended by some of the top trainers in the racing world. She uses natural plant compounds to enhance performance and to support health and vitality. Superfix manufactures and supplies bespoke plant supplements for the racing industry to treat many chronic afflictions, such as gastric ulcers, bleeding, tying up, and stress. Carol started Equibiome and Petbiome a year ago, She's been amazed at how closely the biome reflects the environment. The biggest shock has been seeing how the loss of diversity in the biome correlates with a high incidence of inflammation of the gut, together with high levels of pathogenic bacteria. So, 
there's so much to unpack in all of this. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. So first, let me welcome Carol Hughes to the conversation. Thank you. It's it's hard to know quite where to begin, but what I what I thought I want I'd do is start with a very very basic question, which is, what is the difference between a horse's digestive system and that of a cow? And I know this can seem like a really basic question, but I suspect there are a lot of horse people, horse owners who sort of vaguely know that a cow is a ruminant and a horse isn't, but may, may not fully understand what some of those differences mean in terms of how we manage our pastures and what we can feed to a cow and what we can feed to a horse. Yeah, got you. I, I think the biggest difference between the cow and the horse today uh, it's not so much that one's a foregut fermenter and one's a hindgut, the horse being the hindgut fermenter. It's the knowledge of feeding a, a ruminant is all about manipulating the biome to produce better meat. And it's not really about health. And with the horse being a hindgut fermenter, it means that a lot of um, stuff or plant material goes into the hindgut and then has to be processed in the body whereas with the cow uh, being a foregut fermenter it doesn't have to go that far it can be fermented and then go into the body or go internally if you like so the cow is less susceptible to uh, changes in diet what, um, what it's ingesting doesn't make it into the body um, but with a horse it does Having said that, um, the biggest difference is the knowledge of how to manipulate the cow, and we don't know anything about that in the horse. So we know loads about manipulating the diet, uh, microbial protein synthesis to produce meat, but it's more important in the horse, and we don't know very much about it. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. So, because I think that this being a hindgut fermenter is uh, is a really important distinction that a lot of the people I meet in clinics and so on I think do not fully understand in terms of managing a healthy digestive system for the horse and that where some of the problems come in in terms of ulcers colics etc etc and what can be fed a horse safely yeah, I, I think the biggest problem is not so much the lack of understanding, but the diet we feed a horse. It's based on, um, I guess, a history of agricultural science. I think equine science did come from agricultural science. It's very much about the nutrient value and not so much about the interaction of the food with the microbes and then on into the, the, the body and the difference it makes to the physiology of the horse. So it's kind of different. In a cow, they don't really care about very much apart from making meat. Whereas the horse, it's all about how health is sustainable. Um, but then to understand that part of it, you have to understand the interaction 
between the food item, the microbes and the horse. That makes so sense. It does make sense. So in terms of really building, developing healthier pastures, healthier feeding programs for our horses, can you lead us through some of the things that you've been doing and that you've been discovering? Yeah, I think the main thing is that, that we're feeding food that's kind of single item food. Say we feed soya holes and we attach a lot of value to that one type of plant material. And we seem to research to make sure that the nutrient value is adequate and to which we may or may not add minerals to and vitamins to. Um, but the horse is a, a kind of an interactive system with its environment. So it needs to eat a, a massive variety of different plants that all have hundreds of different phytochemicals that then interact with the microbiome and then impact the health. The, uh, things like stress, um, it, the gut bacteria interact with the brain even. So there's so many areas that interact with each other that for that you need a very complex diet and that's what isn't happening with horses because we've lost the diversity, we've lost um, the hundreds of different chemicals that horses are meant to eat. Uh, the interaction between what goes in and the health of the horse is far less. It's, it, it has been narrowed down to you know, not very much. I mean, really not very much at all. When you think of the average horse, what he would consume in a day is probably an eighth of what he really needs to be healthy. So is this why when I was growing up, I never encountered a horse with laminitis. I never saw a horse with colic until I was in my 20s, I think. And the, the incidence of metabolic syndrome and horses that can't eat grass and is this all is this all part of this yeah i think one of the biggest um shocks or biggest um eye-opening moments would be looking at the bacteria that are linked to metabolism and they were so low in most uh, sedentary type of horses different in the racehorse but they were low or non-existent and there are 48 different type of metabolic pathways from the gut bacteria uh, through into to produce energy um, in the horse that so many of the bacteria relating to that metabolism were missing or at such low levels um, they weren't, weren't doing the job um, and that's about diet you have to feed the bacteria and you have to create an environment for them and that means they have to have plant material uh, in particular the metabolism is governed by plant steroids um, which you would find in spinach, say, let's say wild spinach, we, which we grow here. Um, but not many people would know that really. And it's such a vital part of the diet, which they would have got until we killed off all the, what we would call weeds. And, uh, you know, DEFRA had a policy of getting rid of plants like that to increase the productivity for meat production. So, you know, we've, we've had 50 years of loss of that type of plant. Well, we did use, um, we used an, an ectisterone. We actually purified it. So we took it out of wild spinach um, and we purified it at the chemistry lab. Um, and then we put it into the biome of a beast. I think in the end we had probably 75 
possibly more because it's seven years ago now um of these different obese horses and horses with laminitis and we looked for the bacteria that were associated with metabolism and we looked for changes in those bacteria and we did find that by introducing the ectdiesterone which you would find in wild spinach quinoa um, and actually many wild plants but it's there in very low quantities because horses don't need much of it but they do need it and we found that the bacteria associated with the metabolism or good metabolism increased which was very interesting we didn't know what to do with that information for about um, five years until the technology moved on um, and made it cheaper and easier to be able to offer the testing service commercially and so as you've tested different populations what are what are you finding so as you look at say horses that are stabled in what has become a conventional way of maintaining them where they're fed uh hay and loss of the loss of diversity is the biggest thing the increase of bacteria associated with inflammation and the decrease in bacteria associated with metabolism they're the two big areas really where do the bacteria come from are they just in the environment i don't think we know absolutely when they've gone how they come back they do there is a sort of genetic switch and they are highly adaptable um, there's certainly a bunch of them called the proteobacteria that make antimicrobials that seem to switch on and off so i don't think we really know that part about it but we do know when there aren't any and when they're low and we do know that by stimulating they increase so i think that's an interesting thing that we don't know as much about at the moment that we will we will in a year's time as technology increases and the way we look at stuff increases because that's been a question that i've had very recently we've had several of the horses come down with tick fevers it's a very common problem in my area and they've had to be on a course of antibiotics so when a horse is on antibiotics assume that that has a negative effect on the gut biome it does. We, we've got vets at the moment that are working on the antibiotic because obviously everyone's taking antibiotics very seriously and it just wipes out the, the uh, proteobacteria, it wipes out everything really, but the proteobacteria are the ones that make the body's own antibiotics. So it's interesting that you give them antibiotics and it wipes out that part of the biome, yes. uh, which is low anyway because of the loss of diversity. So that raises two questions then. So after a course of antibiotics, how do you how do you restore a healthy gut biome? That would be one question. An interesting one. We've got vets working on that part of it. I, I mean, I know what I would do, let's say, to increase the diversity, but I don't think we know enough around how quickly the biome recovers. Um, and some, for some horses, it won't recover as well. And we don't know why that's so. Um, but certainly some horses seem to recover better than others. And some antibiotics don't seem to wipe out the biome quite so much. So it's a huge area that needs unpacking. Um, and we've only just made a start. We've only been going a year. So uh, we've made a start. And of course, what we tend to do in when we're following the conventional protocols is we get the little container of probiotics and put it in our horse's feed. Is that doing anything? No, not 
terribly much. Um, it makes me feel better because I'm doing something. So, so that's yeah, important. I, but it does make you feel better. I think the prebiotics are actually better. I think complex polyphenols, um, which are contained in woody material of any plant. I mean, if you took your horse hedgerow grazing, that would be as be probably better than adding a, a probiotic, certainly, um, because the horse would choose what he needed anyway, and you would be getting all that good prebiotic material that feeds the bacteria that need to come back. Is, is it worth just going in detail the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic? Yes, definitely. Yeah, well, the prebiotic is undigestible bits of rubbish, I suppose, um, most people would, would think about, about it, but things like inulin, um, things that can't be digested by the biome, but the bacteria do break them down and make other chemicals from them, and the good gut bacteria tend to rely on that, and a probiotic is a live bacteria put into the biome to repopulate it, but there's not much point in repopulating it if you don't with with a bacteria that you don't know is in there anyway. I mean, most of them aren't in there to start with, so you know it's limited really. But at least with a prebiotic, you can feed what you've got there and look after and restore the biome back to what it was. Which gets then back to the second question, which is that of biodiversity. So if we increase the biodiversity that our horses have access to, will we then be increasing the good gut bacteria, increasing the, the gut bacteria that promote the uh, immune system in the horse? What have you been finding? Yeah, some split really. Some horses seem to have high levels of pathogenic bacteria and biofilm bacteria that take up room in the biome and it's almost that you've got to get rid of those first. Um, some of it is coming from the environment, from water. Um, some of it is because the biome is more favorable to that type of bacteria. Um, and then we're getting, or, and we're getting other horses that as soon as you start to introduce biodiversity, they seem to increase the diversity on a retest. So there's two different types really. And I, I think it just, it shows how critical where we're at really um, in a critical way because the diet is so poor to start with. Um, you know, if the diet were better, and we've got plenty of people that have pasture that isn't fertilized, isn't sprayed, and is biodiverse, and they certainly seem to do better out of it. And for some reason, horses that live by the sea mm. seem oh. to be better. They seem to recover quicker. That's interesting. That's a good reason yeah. for us all to move to the seaside. I know, I know. I don't, I don't know what, what they, well, we live near, near the sea, we're fine. <laughs> as long as you live up on a, uh, at a height near the sea so that you're not, when the seawater levels rise with the climate change, that you're not underwater. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we, we do very well here. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is, we're just at the start of understanding all of this, that we've we've come to the this great discovery that the gut biome is important. That's becoming clearer and clearer, but we don't really understand yet enough about it to know really how to 
how to feed it, restore good health. Yeah, I, I think that fair? we've been doing this. We've been doing this a year, and I have to say, we've had some astounding successes. There are horses that have been really not very well at all, and we've wondered what to do with them. They, you know, they've been uh, receiving veterinary treatment, and they're still there and well a year and a half later. So we do know a lot, um, but we don't know everything. It's a very complex area. Um, but the bacteria are quite logical. You know, they, they do what they say on the packet. And um, the rule seems to be that it's a diverse environment. It's um, a community of bacteria that, that all have to kind of get on together. And you can't have one group overrunning another group. Um, that's when it seems to go wrong. And I think that that is, then still goes back to diet. The diversity needs to be in the diet to produce the diversity in the gut and the balance in the gut. So what can ordinary horse owners do? I mean, obviously they can send you a sample and they can get the equivalent tested, but if somebody wants to go out tomorrow and really give their horse the best chance, what can they do to their paddocks and with their horses as a start before they get the results of the equivalent? What's, what's a good starting point? Um, what, when we started, we didn't have the biome foods. We have four, five biome foods, and they're based on uh, a few years' research. I and mean, certainly with the, the Maitinas, we've been researching that for 10 years. Um, but it's all about plants and complex plant chemicals. So what they have to do is go and supply. They don't have to give the biome foods. We, we didn't actually really want to have um, the biome foods are added in there, but people were there wondering, well, what should we do? You, you have to give um, complexity back to the diet. So uh, sadly, you are going to have to grow things together. Um, or not sadly, I think it's quite exciting. I, I, I love our restored products. I'm, I'm thrilled to get that diversity and complexity back. Or you can just take the horse and eat, eat the hedgerow. I mean, really, that's probably the best place to find biodiversity at the moment. As long as your hedgerows are not sprayed and not... Exactly. And that you have hedgerows. Yeah, because yeah, and the Americans... Yes, uh, right, we don't, we don't really have hedgerows. Oh, not no, the way that you see really, in, in, that, yeah. in the UK. Well, in the UK, I don't know if all um, councils are the same, but they're supposed to protect the hedgerows now and the grass verges. And they're supposed to leave them there until the grass is seeded, the flowers have done whatever they're doing before they cut them. And if you're lucky enough to have that kind of hedgerow and uh, verge, that's the best place to, to go and graze for 20 minutes a day. That's it. You know, that's all you've Even got to do. Even in the middle of winter, is that still valid? Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, our hedgerows, because they, they eat the bark, you know, and the bark is full of um, prebiotics. So, right. you know, absolutely. And the biome will adjust to the change in diet anyway. So I live in, in snow country. So walking, going out for hedgerow walks, even if we had hedgerows, would be a challenge. But I could cut brush for my horses. Would that be a useful thing for to do for them? Cut brush. I could cut brush. I could cut branches from shrubs. Sure. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, As, um, our, our ponies eat the um, holly. They eat holly, which horrifies some people white willow, silver birch, they actually 
graze on that kind of woody shrubby stuff with great relish you know it is and we have a lot of uh, kind of marsh glasses here um, and they love those they're full of sugar in the winter perfect they sound more like my goats than yeah than I, no, normally... well, I think horses are more like deer than than cattle anyway really hmm. so as part of their winter enrichment to go out and cut back some of the the shrubs that are pushing into the fences that need to be cut back anyway but bringing those into the paddocks where the horses are would actually provide both good enrichment and help to maintain a healthy gut through the winter is that assuming that i'm not bringing something toxic in i well i i think the topic of toxics really strange as well i i think there are two plants that my ponies don't eat one's ragwort and the other is you. And apart from that, they eat everything else, everything poisonous, they eat with relish. I mean, even the foals. So um, I have to say, I have no idea, but they're very healthy. And I just kind of look the other way if they, they're doing something that, that probably they maybe shouldn't do. Um, but it's when you analyze it, it's full of important phytonutrients. So, um, you know, in, in they eat ivy berries. And I think I was horrified um at that point but when you analyze it, it they're full of um compounds that prevent sugar going over the gut wall so you know there's a purpose and a reason why they do it that was one of the things that struck me most when i came into the course with you was realizing the extent to which as a vet i had been told that certain things were basically going to kill horses if they you know so much as looked at them yeah. And, and realising that that wasn't true and that I could stop panicking when I took the ponies out for the foraging walks. I didn't have to kind of stick my hands into their mouths and drag the bracken out or the hogweed or whatever stuff that they were obviously eating. And the other thing that strikes me is that when I take them for foraging walks, some days they're eating a plant um, and nothing else, pretty much, say dandelions. Today is dandelion day. And, and tomorrow I take you to where the dandelions are and you go, no, 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 I don't eat dandelions anymore. No, I really? see. But you had them yesterday and you're going, yeah, and I might eat them tomorrow, but today I want to eat, I don't know, goosegrass. Today's goosegrass day. Yeah. Um, and it really changes. And they obviously, they can tell the difference. They'll drag me across you know, a track to get to something that they were completely not interested in yesterday. Um, and today it's our favourite food. And they obviously know what they need and given the chance they'll go out and find it. Yeah, which, which just is, I, I love it. Uh, well, 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 me too. I, and what they do eat is astounding. We have um, wild windberries, or wild blueberries, I guess they are, and they graze them. They, they're kind of woody, shrubby things with green leaves on and flowers at some point, but they graze them flat and they go out and they, as a herd, they just start from one end and eat the whole lot. Um, you know, in a few days. So there's obviously a, an optimum time for eating wild blueberries. Um, and, and it's great. They're full of just really important phytonutrients. And I'm amazed that our horses can survive without that kind of grazing, really, when you think what they need um, is so complex. And so varied. And we have a tendency, or I had a tendency, to feed them pretty much the same stuff every day, if, you know, in terms of actually giving them food. Uh, you know, put it stuff in a bucket instead of what they're getting around the fields. Um, and, and watching them, I realised that I really needed to give them variety and let them yeah. choose their own variety, which, which again, is one of those things that sounds great and is hard to do. 
in, in terms of just basic course management, you get home from work and it's you know, eight o'clock at night and it's very yeah. wet and very dark and your horses are standing there going, we're starving, feed us now. Um, and you just want to chuck stuff in a bucket. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. just not where it's at really anymore. But I, I, I guess if you restore the pasture eventually, yeah. um, then you haven't got to, yeah, and, and also maybe not just have fields of grass, you know, it's, yeah. um, woods are great, our, our horses eat the, the fern off the stone wall, the moss, um, everything. So that would be something else. If So certainly I don't know, Alex, whether it's the same with you, but suddenly in the UK, people have, the climate emergency is becoming a thing and everyone's decided that planting trees is the answer which you know, we could discuss that. Planting trees might be a part of the answer, but I'm nothing against people deciding they want to come and plant 150 trees in my paddocks as long as they do it in the places where I want the trees. But what would be interesting, Carol, would be to know if I had somebody wanting to plant 150 new trees in the paddocks, what would be really good for them to plant? A mixture, a mixture of, because okay. we've got it. They like anything that's a tree, they'll eat most trees, but I think planting something that will go with your environment. Around us, we've got a lot of wild cherry. So uh, mm. we have wild cherry, holly goes well. For some, in other areas, it may be something else. So I think it's important to look at what the plant community is in your own environment anyway. What grows well is some places okay. it would be willow. I think mm. up in, um, we go to a lady up North Lancashire and that's really, willow country so that they've got maybe 12 different varieties well that's great plant willow you know okay. just go with what what will grow there and the biome will adapt it doesn't you know necessarily have to be a tree for a reason um as long as it's a, a native tree of the uk okay but, and then you bring your lusitano that you just imported from spain that's been living on sand and yeah and seagrass and you go okay here we are we've got this nice willow for you um and does that biome adapt also yeah we've had maybe 12 14 uh lusitanos they do struggle I, they seem to have the sort of gut that would go better on a marsh where because their metabolism doesn't work terribly well they have hardly any bacteria relating to metabolism but you've got to do something haven't you you know if they're, yeah. they're over here certainly grass wouldn't go down very well but things that contain a lot of saponins tannins um we've got marshland here and I, I think that would be a much better environment but it doesn't look great i guess if you've got a lusitana and he's out on the marsh maybe that's a cultural <laughs> Yeah, because I think right. yeah, they go, they, the Andalusians or the PREs go all around the world now. Is it the case that their guts can be helped? Or can, if, we, if we knew what we were doing, they could bring their gut biome back to the point where grass isn't a disaster? Or is it just part of I, what Yeah, I don't think we've managed that. We've certainly, the people that have had them have contacted us and said, yes, it's working, it's better. But I don't know, you know, I mean, in the UK, the grass that we grow has been managed anyway too much, hasn't it? I mean, it's very unusual to find the sort of pasture that they may get on with that may be complex enough for their biome. We, we've just got kind of sugar-rich grass that grows like bilio because everything is fertilised and sprayed. So that's the problem. I think I don't think it's the horse. It's what we're trying to put them onto. And does it make a difference if you have an Iberic horse that was born in... Spain versus one that was born in the UK? 
I don't know. I, I haven't had that experience. I don't don't know. I, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the Icelandic courses, where the Icelandics that were born in Iceland, which my impression is it's a very still a biodiverse environment with a lot of because it's a volcanic soil, a lot of good mineral content, etc. But when they when they are when they come over to the U.S. when they come to Great Britain. The ones that were born in Iceland are very prone to Swedish. The ones that are born in the U.S., Swedish is less of a problem. So there's been some adaptation when they are when their immune system is tweaked early on by the exposure to to the local insects that doesn't occur when they come from Iceland. So I'm just wondering if the same thing might be occurring with the Icelandic, or with, sorry, with the Iberic horses that are born in Spain might have more difficulty adapting to the sprayed pastures of the UK to the managed pastures we have in the US versus ones that are born on those pastures. So we don't have data, we don't have no data around that yet. I have limited data on that but I couldn't, they've all been quite different. And, and metabolism has been low in, the bacteria related to metabolism is low across the board. So it's kind of early days, I think, to conclude anything. So there are, there are anecdotes which raise questions, which are then say, ah, there's a, a thesis in search of a graduate student kind of thing. And I think that's, that's the idea, you know, the, the, the analysis is all, we help hold the, all the detail and we group the horses together. So yeah, at some point, I'm sure someone will say that's really my thing and hopefully do a study, fingers crossed. So in part, what the Equibiome is about is, is just collecting this, uh, the data so that eventually the patterns will begin to emerge and the research questions will emerge and we can learn how to do it better for our horses. Would that be fair? Yeah. I mean, we, we, with the dogs, um, because we, we do pet biome, we, we've already got students involved. It's m much faster um, with the dogs. This, this, the interest is there straight away that, you know, they've really got hold of it and running with it. So getting back to the, to the trees for a moment. So in my area, we have black walnuts, and I've always been taught to keep horses away from black walnuts that the leaves can uh, create laminitis um, in the horses. But what you're saying is that we can relax a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, with black walnut, I know they induce laminitis with black walnut. That's all I know about it um, from reading papers on it. I have no direct experience. I think I probably have to have some growing and see what my, how my horses ate it or what how they approached it they may never touch it I, I don't know but I think um, I think it's unfair to always blame the plant you know it may be the loss of diversity in the biome is isn't helping um, certainly mine eat everything um, and the wild ponies on the hill next door they eat bracken as proper food you know that it doesn't seem to bother them but I don't know what to say about it I'm quite comfortable um, but a lot of people wouldn't be. So it sounds as though if we have a horse that's lived 
in an impoverished environment that throwing them out into a very biodiverse world that they might not at first thrive because they don't have the, the biodiversity in their gut biome to deal with the variety that's being thrown at them. I, I think horses certainly have a, they, want, they know what they want to eat. And I think that if they've been on a pasture that's just about sugar, they will just go for sugar. And it takes them quite some time to work out that they need other types of food as well. Um, I mean, we've, I've seen them here. In fact, one of the reasons for going down this route was that I had a, um, a good doer. They're, all my Welsh ponies are good doers. Um, and I worked in Newmarket and I took my two-year-old because I wanted to show her to Newmarket and turned her out in a tiny little um, postage stamp kind of small paddock. And within days she was footy and fatter. Well, I wasn't actually sure how you could get something footy and fatter when they weren't actually eating anything. Um, so I put her, abandoned the showing. It was such an awful moment and put her back in the trailer and took her back to Wales and just turned her out on the mountain and she was fine. You know, we, we, she just went back to being what she was meant to be. And I think that's because then she's not getting the things to eat that help her digest sugar. Um, she's not getting the plant compounds that prevent sugar from being digested rapidly or will prevent sugar being digested at all. Um, and it's, she's also not getting the food to support the gut bacteria that are in charge of metabolism. So it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword in a way. Which I think brings us then to what can we do as uh, individual horse owners to improve our pastures and our woodlots? What should we be doing? I, I think it's going to be slow for some places, without a doubt. Um, I mean, certainly having worked in Newmarket, I do have trainers that are now growing a verge, um, you know, in their sort of neat manicured paddocks. They'll grow wildflowers, wild grass seeds um, around the edge. So the horses have got other things to pick at. And I think that's probably what all people should have is a patch of wild stuff that they can go to easily. Um, I think that's quite radical for some people. I don't think people, some people would even consider that that was what they needed. But And especially if they're, if they're on ex-dairy land, it's going to be hard to do that anyway because wild stuff doesn't like fertilised soil. It's very hard to kind of restore it um, and it will be an uphill battle for a bit. So let's assume that I've just purchased a farm that was a dairy farm. It was managed as a dairy farm. The hay fields were managed for creating hay for uh, the dairy cows or the beef cattle. And there's been a lot of fertilizer and herbicides used on the land. What should I be doing? Well, I think I would probably grow a seed crop for hay that was a mix of grasses and but also contained herbs and legumes so maybe 65 percent mixed grass kind of as, as, as close as you could get to what would be wild maybe uh, tall oak grass 
but you'd have to really have a look um, at what would grow in your area um, and then mix it with legumes and the rest of the percentage would be made up of legumes and maybe two or three different types of herbs that probably wouldn't take for a couple of years so you'd have to keep reseeding um, anyway which is kind of hard for a lot of people to do and then I would probably have another area that um, I would just reseed each year with a plant community mix of seeds it gets kind of complex and um, so hopefully I'm not kind of getting too complex I think that's probably too difficult for the average horse owner it sounds difficult because first of all I then have to go find the seed and then I have to know how to seed you know do I plow up my my hay field do I you know what it what am I supposed to be doing to reseed that hay field I think because it, we're in such a crisis in the UK, I've been working with a number of farmers that are in the higher stewardship. I don't know if that's probably going to change after Brexit, but they're encouraged to grow a more diverse plot of land. And these are farmers that have always, uh, you know, fertilised and done this and this and this. And so they're they're planting a, a more diverse mix and it's working for them but they're farmers and they know how to manage i think biodiversity is probably in a large area is probably too much for the average horse owner yeah i i think it probably is at the moment I think, sadly i i think um the equicentral system which i've been doing and and using green green hay as a mulch and things like that you can I, I've got, so I had half pasture that had 58 species on it, on the on the kind of wild bit, and the other bit had 23, and it clearly been improved. Itself. Yeah, I, th I think it's, when, it's when you were, when I, when I was asked the question, I think I was thinking of your average livery centre on the next dairy pasture, say somewhere in the Midlands, <laughs> um, where there's limited, you know, the pastures yeah. really are overgrazed, yeah. and there's limited you maybe got a farmer running a livery centre that isn't into that you know he's still perhaps farming in traditional ways and keeping horses off the land you need, you need ownership over the land really, yeah i think them. i think that's what i was thinking of and i was you know i get loads of people that say i'm on a livery centre what do i do um and i guess that's why we we made the biome foods because at least we've put in there the compounds the complex compounds that will make a difference to the horse without them having to worry about the grazing just yet. You know, hopefully in the future, um, I certainly think that that's where horse management will go, certainly. So I have 34 acres and it's a mix of pasture and woods. And one of the things that I liked about the, the land when we bought it was it had not been grazed, it had not had animals on it since the 70s it had been cut for hay wow. or or at least it had been the fields had been cut and kept open but there hadn't been any grazing and when I looked at the fields there was a lot of biodiversity in the fields and that was that really drew me to the pastures that they had a much healthier look to them because there was this nice herbaceous mix so what I want is to be able to maintain that. And I've certainly seen, I've seen some changes in the fields as the horses have been on them. And 
some of it is it's all for the better or it's a mix some of it's for the better so there were some areas that were just completely overgrown with goldenrod it's all that grew there and that's now we've been cutting the goldenrod and and getting that getting ahead of that a little bit so there's more of a mix coming in where the goldenrod had taken over so that's a positive in some other areas the fields have become i would say overgrazed there and i need to be better at keeping the horses off of some of the sections of the fields where they really seem to prefer it but how do i what are some of the the ways to maintain good biodiversity in my pastures and to increase the biodiversity in my pastures i it's a not a difficult question it's um if, if you're grazing horses uh, and you want to maintain the pasture so you want to maintain the grasses growing no bare patches is that is that really what you're saying i i don't want any bare patches absolutely i so i don't don't want any um mud i don't want the muddy areas but i also want i want a biodiverse rich pasture that is going to maximize my chances for healthy horses yeah i i think with with my land i always let it have a we if we're cutting it for hay because we've got 50 acres in total 25 is here and then we have 25 up the mountain so when we want the hay to take hay off the pasture that we have we just move them to the other 25 acres so i have to say we, we probably don't have that problem of overgrazing at all if i was in a place that i wanted to restore biodiversity you would always have to let the grass uh, seed and you would have to let flowers seed flower and then seed uh, so you would always have to take the horses off for a period of time while that happened and i guess then you would probably need to have some kind of paddock that where it didn't matter i mean most people are a yard somewhere you could put them where they could it would take the pressure off the grazing and i think that's the hard bit with management um, and the, the questions that i'm asked you know obviously people ring and get in touch with us it's how to do that i think more than anything and I guess my answer to that is to, the, for the people that have a track system, is to fence an area off and really improve the biodiversity on that area that's fenced off and then cut it and actually feed it then as a chaff to introduce the biodiversity to the horse. Because you've, you've got a protected area, you've got control over it, but you're also growing all the nutrients you need for a healthy biome. Um, and I would do that. I think it depends on how much land you've got and how many horses you've got and how much you want that uh, pasture to, to remain biodiverse because you've got to have a period where you allow the land to rest and that has to take priority over the fact that you want your horses out on the field in the summer. Yes. And that makes it difficult. But I'm thinking that, so for example, in my, for me, we don't have enough acreage to cut enough hay for the horses to get through the the, uh, the whole year. But there are areas that are cut for hay. And if we really manage those well for good biodiversity, that that could be, I'm thinking, almost like a premium 
hay that we reserve, especially through the winter when there's less grazing. And so we would feed the normal hay coming from our hay grower, but then supplement with this special hay that that would have that biodiversity in it. That's exactly the way to do it. Exactly the way. If you can do that, you will be giving the horse what he needs because it will almost be like buying, um, you know, a prebiotic and feeding a prebiotic. That's exactly what what you're providing the horse with. So if if we could do the combination of what you talked about earlier of uh, either taking them for walks along the hedgerows and the verges so that they can eat the woody plants and then providing them with this sort of premium hay, not necessarily having a whole hayloft of it because it might not be able, A, to afford it, or it might not have the acreage to produce it. But if I had some of that hay to supplement their normal hay ration, that I'd be well ahead of, I'd be well ahead. Perfect. That would be absolutely brilliant. And that the bottom line in this is to let nature do what nature is supposed to do, which is provide the horses with as biodiverse a diet as we can in whatever climate environment we are living in, to really look at what would normally be growing in this area. And, And instead of trying to control it, I think one of the things that I found really interesting, I have a side hill by the barn that I don't cut because it's a fairly steep hill and it's got a lot of goldenrod on it. And the I had the goats up on this hill and they ignored the goldenrod, ignored the goldenrod, ignored the goldenrod until just before the goldenrod was, real, was ready to go into full bloom. And then they devoured it, <laughs> chopped it right down. Yeah. It's like, go for it. And, yeah. But it just shows you that we really don't have to push against all of these plants that you think are invasive or weeds or, oh, I don't want that in my field, that our grazers will will take care of it. Yeah. No, they will. And I, I think it's we, we've got stallions in the herd. They'll always eat everything. The, the mares, and I guess it's because the mares are breeding and they need need the better pasture, I suppose, to feed the foals. Um, whereas the, the, the stallions eat all the rubbish. You know, they, they'll just kind of graze everything flat, which I'm very grateful for. But I guess if you, if you don't have stallions in the herd, you know, you, you're left managing it differently, aren't you? Yes. Yes, you are. So another just sort of general question before we move on to other things. So worming, one of the things that I hadn't really thought about, but when we worm our horses, that those chemical wormers then go into the soil and affect the mycorrhizal fungi and other bacteria in the soil. What, what have you found relating to that? Well, chemical wormers wipe out the proteobacteria and then seem to sort of wipe them out a little bit like antibiotics. And then suddenly you get an inflammatory response from the proteobacteria. We've, we've actually followed uh, 50 horses through a year's cycle of them being wormed. So that's what it does. Now, what that, the knock-on effect of that is, it's too early to say, 
I don't wear mine. I'll be brave and just say I don't because I think certainly there's an interaction. I, I think an unhealthy horse is an unhealthy horse. If he's on an unhealthy pasture, fair enough. But there is a way that um, whatever parasites or that there is a way that they're going to be useful. I don't think you can just wipe something out. It's a little bit like seeing a lot of Borrelia and Bartonella in the gut. I don't think you can wipe that out. You know, pathogens are there for a purpose. Um, and I think we'd be getting ahead of ourselves if we just had to control and wipe everything out that we thought we needed to, because it's part of the environment and it's part of a biodiverse environment. And we have to be careful. Having said that, I'm not saying don't worm your horses. Right, right, Do whatever's right. comfortable. Can you explain again? So when you when you worm the horse, what is the effect on the horse's diaper? Well, it, it wipes out the proteobacteria. Um, the proteobacteria contain pathogenic bacteria. Um, some people in, in published research have said that um, proteobacteria are bad and linked to colitis. So reduced levels are more beneficial but when you realize what else they do, you have to doubt actually wiping them out is a good idea, but we don't know enough just yet. Um, but it's worth considering that they also make antimicrobials. So what happens after they're wiped out, possibly a week, 14 days later, they then increase massively because they're part of an inflammatory process. Why that happens, we don't know enough. We really don't know enough. I think I'm quite brave in saying that much anyway, because published research would, would perhaps say something different, but that's what happens. Wow, it's so complex. Mm. Um, it is, but it's logical. You know, it, it, it really is. I think the published research is still focused on looking at what a bacteria does, what, what bacteria do, and trying to link it to a core you know, what goes on in a horse, is that a core biome? Um, and then what happens if we do, say we feed it something, we feed six horses the same, maybe feed them oats, more oats, what happens in the biome then? But a different action will happen, a slightly different action will happen in them all. So you can't measure the one set of bacteria, you kind of have to look at the whole biome. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do with our research is look at the whole thing and try not to get too involved with one set of bacteria, but look at what goes on in the whole biome. So I have a client who, she emailed me just a day or two ago, and her horse had just come out of a colic episode. This is a well-managed, what we would call a well-managed horse, very, very thoughtful owner. Whenever you have a colic episode, there's always that, Oh, what can I change? What can I do? What should I do differently? You know, what what can I what can I do to prevent this? So in general, not not thinking necessarily about this specific case, but just in general, when you have a horse that has had a colic or more troubling, a series of colics, what are some of the things that as a horse owner that we can consider doing that might make a difference if you had the test done i think under the if there's a colic incidence you probably ought to have the test done anyway as a matter of course because 
And when you say the test, what do you mean? The equibiome test. Okay. Because it's going to give you a snapshot of what's going on in the biome. And if with some horses you get high levels of, say, cyanobacter, that's something we're seeing quite frequently. And that's coming in from the water. Um, so you'll, you can see it in there. You can see that there's far too, the levels are far too high. They're way above the average. But it's what you do about it after that. So usually what we do is try and liaise with the vet and we all talk about it because it's you need to be able to put it into a framework that the owner can understand that's to start with there may be lots of different reasons uh, why the why you've got colic so you have to kind of explore it i don't think a horse owner can do general things is what i'm trying to say i think each case is different and it's quite complex and you'd probably need to be liaising with, with the vet at that point. But adding in the, that snapshot that the equibiome provides would be a useful piece of information then that could direct you. Yeah, a powerful analytical tool. You've you just got so much information that you can look at and try and uh, work out what you're going to do with. It, it's just better to have it. You know, if, if you think before... Um, we could look at the biome in this way, you had that massive complex environment that you knew nothing about. And, you know, many, as you say, colic is associated with the biome, I would say in 80% of cases. So if you're given that amount of information about how to manage the biome, that's much better than not knowing anything. Will our, our general vets know what to do? do with that information what do we do so we get the readout what do we do with it we do, it's organized into sections and we kind of relate the levels of inflammation and pathogenic bacteria we found that possibly 20 percent of vets quite like it the rest well some maybe like it and some absolutely hate it we're a bit like marmite but um <laughs> the thing is you ha it has to be done. I, I, you know, this is the most astounding bit of technology and step forward um, in modern science for a long, long time, and it, it needs to be done. So, so I'm I'm going to interrupt you for just a minute because I don't know <laughs> that everybody, <laughs> right, that everybody who's listening really knows what the Equibiome project and what it is that you're that you're talking about. Uh, well, it, it uses a type of technology that is just fantastic at gathering data. There's trillions and trillions of gut bacteria in the gut, uh, as well as fungi, um, archaea, and also bacteriophages. So part of the immune system is in the gut. Um, and it reads it all, takes a reading of, of everything that's going on in the gut by extracting at the genome. And then it's relates it, it puts it into um we have an excel spreadsheet and also an online icloud account and then we're able to extract from that and put the bacteria then into uh, relationships with each other percentages based on averages or what you know what's above average um we and then we give a report to the owner that's it really going back to whether my vet likes marmite or not um, which not everybody's going to understand that reference but I do I've got this readout and I take it to my vet 
how do we work with it? How do we use it? My microbiology isn't really well taught in vet schools. I think they've concentrated on other things. And the technology has suddenly appeared. I think equine research is fairly uh, underfunded. Would that be fair to say, Amanda? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's fairly conservative, let's say that. And suddenly you've got this, this fantastic research facility that's affordable and but you've got to be trained in microbiology to to understand it so we've tried to make the report as logical as we can and we're here to um to liaise directly with the vet and very often it works really well and they're, they're absolutely thrilled to be fair dogs are better than horses horses are, are more conservative than dogs with with the dogs we've been um, you mean horse vets are more conservative than yeah. dog vets that's what I mean. Thank you, Amanda. That's uh, yeah. We, um, with, with the dogs, it's not a problem. It's what they've been waiting for, the same as it is in humans. Human medicine, it's transforming human medicine. I think with horses, it's always going to be slow for a bit, I think, because they are quite conservative. But I think I've, I've got reports on these and, and I'm not currently in clinical practice. And, and yes, a lot of my colleagues are conservative in all senses of the word, but um, it's very clearly laid out. It, I mean, we, we, the system looks at the DNA of all the bacteria, and when you get that alone, I imagine it's completely unpalatable, but what Carol and the team have done is to produce uh, a kind of traffic light system of green, amber, red, of, you know, this is good, this is hovering, and this is not good, based on the data that we have at the moment. It's not rocket science to go through mm. it and understand what's there and, and implement it. The question is whether you want to do that. And I think back to the old thing of if, if your only tool is a hammer or your problems become nails and we need to let people explore the fact that perhaps not everything is a nail and that they can, they can incorporate this into their clinical repertoire without it um, pushing everything else off the edge. So I think it's one of those things that, you know, they laugh at you and, and then they dismiss you and then they decide that you were right. And it won't take very long before they decide that you're right. Because, because the horses, you know, Alex always says, we're good people for opinions and horses for answers. And it isn't going to take many vets, many horses that, whose owners follow your recommendations. Because again, the recommendations are straightforward and it's not complicated to try and do this. And if they see the horses getting better, I think they will come round. It just, it's just going to take a year or two for that to build. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, I think what, what's um, been great for us is the people get it, the horse owners get it and they get it because it's logical. And um, I think that the biome is about relationships and they're fairly complex relationships, but I think, the horse owners get it. I don't know why they seem to get it perhaps better than the vets. I think it's because we're the ones walking the horses at 2 a.m., you know, when it's freezing cold out and, and it's a horse we love and we want to do something. Yeah. We want answers. And, and the thing is, if your vet is saying that this isn't working and your perception is that it is working, you will change your vet. Yeah, and I, I think what we've done with the report as well is is made it an analytical tool, which it is. Um, I think in the dogs, they're very interested in it becoming a diagnostic tool, which it will become, but that's far more complex. You have to jump through a few legal hoops to be able to do that 
and that will take some time. But as an analytical tool relating to diet, because really all you can do anyway is change the diet, isn't it? I mean, you're, the owner is the person that feeds the horse. If they've got all that information about how to, um, uh, how to manage the biome, they're going to do it. Do, do you know that they really are going to do it and they're going to take it seriously. They don't have to go out and buy anything in particular. And that's much better than giving the horse a drug, I'd say even. So what would be some of the recommendations? What would be in general some of the things that uh, a horse owner would be able to do? I think a lot of a lot of them to start with well, a high percentage seem to have high levels of spirochetes, so which are translocating bacteria, which was quite a surprise. So what we did because we've got a long history in plant chemicals, we're, we're, we're at second stage research for a pharmaceutical um, anti-inflammatory compound from Natinus. So we know quite a lot about the chemicals that are in the plants. So what we would do is find a natural alternative um, for uh, what would get rid of spirochetes if it were a drug, of which there's quite a lot known. Um, and then we, we trial it. We, we try and reduce the spirochetes using that natural compound. And then we recommend it to owners. Or, or we say, well, you can find that in, in these type of foods. This will work on that bacteria. This will help reduce that bacteria. And then off they go and do it which then collects more data, which then contributes to the whole knowledge base, which then makes it, takes us a step closer to truly having a diagnostic and treatment protocol for the horses. And one of the um, surprising things we did, because it's always surprising, but because bacteria are logical, they do respond. Um, we had uh, racehorses and I, I can't say too much because I'm under an NDA, but basically we wanted to increase the diversity in racehorses that are fed a pretty unbiodiverse diet. But by supplying them a small amount, maybe 30 grams a day, I think uh, it was, or 30 grams twice a day, you could restore that biome actually quite quickly um, because you were giving the horse what he needed. Or even in a small amount, which is really quite encouraging that you don't actually need to feed um, bales of hay, as we were discussing with the, the, the biodiverse hay, you just need a handful, you just need a, a bit uh, to make the difference. And that's been fantastic, actually. And in the end, the, the, the racehorse biome looked more like the wild horse biome. And it was containing bacteria that were making vitamins and supporting the immune function better. Um, and that was a real result, a real result. Wow. So there will be a paper published on that. I think that they're starting to write it in, in January. So if I were boarding my horse and I don't have any control over the hay that is used and the way the fields are managed, but I have a house with a garden, a yard, I could grow, I could easily grow. So instead of having a manicured lawn, I could have a mini little hay field, which I could cut. And what you're saying is that it doesn't take a lot. No. So if, if I wanted to supplement my horse with some biodiverse 
roughage through the winter, especially through the winter months, uh, that instead, as a as if I were boarding, that instead of feeling completely frustrated, that I could grow small amounts and that that would make a difference. I've turned my back lawn into um, meadow mats mm. just because I love all that stuff anyway. And um, it's fantastic. You just buy them and put them down and they grow. And Meadow mats. I don't know what that is. So what does that mean? <laughs> do you know that, Manda? I don't. I don't think, actually. It sounds really interesting because I want to do stuff with the lawns here too. Yeah, you just buy them. Um, top of my head, I can't remember where we got them from, but there's several places online put in meadow mats. You can choose what kind of mix you want. You can have a, you could have two or three of different ones, um, and you put them down like turf, and that's it. They grow, and you cut them, and you dry them, and do whatever you want with them. And um, the the person, our local university, obviously because they're, they're into biodiversity, they have them. Um, instead of having flowers they just have all flower beds they just have have these instead and it's it's fantastic so we could completely transform some of our our flower borders that instead of trying to grow all the pretty flowers which i can't grow anyway because the deer come and eat them my garden which used to be very beautiful botanical garden has now become a zoological park instead ah and rather than trying to fight against the deer, it's like, come in, you're welcome. Whatever you want to eat, you can eat. But to grow meadow mats in the borders, both for the deer and then whatever they didn't devour, I could uh, take to the barn for the horses. Sounds really fun. Mm, no, I, I love that stuff. I, I must say, I can't get enough. Different plant communities are, are fascinating to me. Wow. Okay, meadow mats, something to explore, that sounds right. Yes, yes. I well, it's, something my... you can, it's something you can do quite quickly, I guess, isn't it? It's, yeah. Uh... yeah, we can do it by next spring. We can have it. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't be really cheap, but they're not over expensive. You know, they're, they're worth it. They're really worth it. And then once you put down a few meadow mats, do they then spread? I haven't got to that. I only did mine last year, so I, I don't know till this spring. I, I don't know what's going to grow. I think we'll just have to see. But what I tend to do is is do plug plants. Whatever won't grow and I want it to grow, I'll do plug plants anyway and, and just uh, introduce it that way. I mean, some of you have to do like that anyway. So how does all of this relate then to the climate crisis that we're in? So how does this tie in with our being able to sequester more carbon under the land that we manage? Uh, do you know, it, it's not, I think the la lack of biodiversity is more important even than that. I think it's, uh, diversity is about stability. So when you have a crisis in the environment, if you have diversity in the environment, you have more resilience so to me i'd concentrate on that almost before the other because it's something you can do and it's, it's hugely important for the health of the planet and i would go with that and certainly something that we can see so what we the the biodiversity that we see above ground is presumably reflected by the biodiversity magnified on a huge scale below ground so that 
the more biodiverse our fields become, the healthier our fields become. That's, that's what we can see. And the benefit, the end result may be a lot more carbon being sequestered in the ground. And the benefit that we see above ground are, is that we have much more biodiverse pastures, we have more insects, we have more birds because they have the insects to feed on, we have the pollinators coming back, etc., etc., which is an important part of all of this because uh, we could, if we, if we cut back on fossil fuel, fuel emissions and somehow or another reduce the amount of carbon in the environment, but oh, by the way, we've reduced the number of species that exist on the planet. We're living in a very impoverished world and that's no good. I, I think it's worse than that. I think that the loss of biodiversity is more critical than carbon. I, I really do. I think that when you look at what's in a biome um, and when you look at the wild horses that we, we've looked at, it is quite critical, actually. I think it's, you know, it's on the edge, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. I, I don't know. I don't think you can go on the way we are and be healthy. I think health will take on a different meaning if we're not careful. Well, we certainly see that in people. Yes. And and in our dogs and our cats, everything around us. The dogs, the dogs are worse. Yeah, the dogs are worse. Um, because what you're seeing there is that animals that aren't kept terribly healthy ha have poor gut wall integrity. So the pathogenic translocating bacteria uh, pass over the gut wall and get into the dog. So it, it's kind of, that's critical too. So if you improve the biome, the biome will do what it's meant to do, which is keep control of what's in there and police it properly. So the pathogens don't get the chance to um, invade the host. It sounds in a way, it sounds so very simple. It is. It, it, it is. It is simple. I think um, it's, well, as Amanda said, that the, the test seems logical. It's not, you know, it's set out in a logical way. And to be fair, we've only had 50 years of, of um, reducing biodiversity. So, um, you know, it's been there in the background, hasn't it? You know, it is there somewhere in, in small amounts. So we've just got to get back and increase it and, and take it seriously, I think. So if we stop fighting against, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to see a beautifully manicured horse farm. There's the, the fences are uh, beautifully kept. There are no weeds growing around the fence posts. The fields are beautifully cut, et cetera, et cetera. Picture postcard beautiful, except that that's not really a healthy environment. And when I see some of the fence rows and I realize that the reason that they are so neat and tidy is because somebody's used Roundup to kill the weeds around the fence posts, then I really don't want it. But it's, it's, allowing, it's allowing more weeds. It's allowing fields to look a little rougher around the edges. But I, I have to say, as having someone 25 years in Newmarket, I've walked out on the heath with many a trainer looking for plants for horses because the heath is old um, turf. You know, it's been there for well, a couple of hundred years at least. And, and surrounding Newmarket is also triple SI, so sites of scientific interest, grassland, 
of scientific interest. So they, they are aware of that and they've possibly been doing that for quite some time. Um, they also have herb gardens. So they're kind of aware, you know, they are adding stuff to their horses' diets and they do know and do understand that they have to do things like that, um, which is great. You know, when you think about Newmarket with its new manicured paddocks and you've got trainers trying to do something different. I think that's, yes. that's fantastic. Yes. yes. Well, and it's, and it's saying to all of us who have horses that it's okay to be a little less tidy. In fact, that may be part of the answer, that allowing more of the weeds that normally we would go in and, and mow back and cut back to keep them from coming into the fields is the opposite of what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I, before we moved to Wales, um, we had 45 acres in Shropshire and it was an ex-dairy farm and m most of it was still managed because we'd rented it out to a farmer. And at that time we got used to him spraying um, fertilizer everywhere and um, killing off, spraying the fields if he got fed up with dandelions. And my horses that still had the Welsh ponies also had thoroughbreds at the time, ended up on a, a postage stamp no grass at all because they couldn't eat it and that's what a lot of people are living isn't it that's what a lot yes. what's happening to yes. a lot of people and when we moved to wales i remember with looking at disgust in this this hill we'd bought a nine age fort and nobody lived on it for uh, or nobody done anything with it for probably 20 years and we started to cut it back and expose the different areas um but the life in it the life and all these different areas of different plants came through and we turned the horses out onto it and thought, well, what on earth are you going to eat? Because there's nothing here to eat. And they told us what they were going to eat. And as they grazed it back, so other plants came through, areas changed, uh, water channels became clearer. And it's beautiful now. You know, we've been the subject of a few um, meadow restoration uh, kind of projects and it's just a wonderful place and I'd never ever go back to, to 45 acres of dairy farm anywhere it's just a horror to me when you see the you know what the horses actually need and what, what mm -hmm. we give them are so different but you know it, the thing is it requires a total faith shift in how we think about how we yes, keep horses in, in the same way that behavior it does. does it's it's yeah. as if we've reached that point where we've taken the old system as far as it can possibly go yeah and now we need to just step back and go you know what guys this is not working and yeah. before we kill everything really badly we need to do something different and that applies to so many areas of life but particularly with our horses it's, it feels like we've just run a particular thread of this is how it used to be done so we're going to do what we used to do only faster but i I, I don't think i think when i had ponies as a kid they used to go out in the orchard in the winter you know we don't have orchards mm. and an orchard was a place where rubbish grew in a way i mean you weren't bothered about the grass but most farms had an orchard and i don't remember i, I guess it was the introduction in the uk of livery um centers and there was far more equine science was based on the agricultural model but gradually it all became different didn't it but it's only been in the last 30 years so surely it's not going to take you know, too much to reverse it, fingers crossed. Yeah, because I, I know too many people who have horses who can't go out and graze. No. And 
These are grazing animals, but they can't go out and graze. So there's clearly we're doing something very wrong. But when we hear about situations like yours, where you had horses that couldn't go out and graze and now are out grazing, yeah, then that points us in the direction. It's not, the problem is not in the horse. No. The problem is in what we're putting the horses out to graze on. Yeah, and that I, we I need think to the other change. problem is not what they're eating, it's what they're not eating. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. Um, that's what we have to change. But I mean, what we have to change, I don't know. I think I, I, I was lucky, but it was a steep learning curve. You know, it was um, coming from Newmarket and the manicured paddock thing. Um, it, it needed the horse to show me. I think that was that was it. Yes. And they are a bit of the canary. I mean, they, they really are a canary in the in the mine because they're they are showing us with all these situations where we have horses that cannot eat grass. They're showing us what is breaking down in terms of not just their diet, but ours as well. Yeah. Yeah. And dogs. Dogs are the same. And dogs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and dogs that dogs that can't that can only eat certain foods. But when you look in the biome, there's so much inflammatory, so, so such high levels of inflammatory bacteria that that's the reason why. But it's there because the diet isn't right. You know, feeding a bagged a diet of kibble or whatever that's been formulated to give it nutrient value it isn't actually feeding the biome, and it's the same with horses. I mean, some will get away with it. Um, you know, I have no doubt. Some have stronger, stronger biome than others. But I think we are seeing a rise in chronic disease. Certainly, that's what I'm hearing from, from people that are out there. Yes. So the bottom line summary would be what? I think something's got to change. Um, <laughs> the bottom line summary is just change what you feed big time. And that change would take you in the direction of feeding something that doesn't come out of a bag, if you can, trying to go out there and do it yourself a bit, grow your own stuff a bit. Don't be frightened of what the horse is telling you it wants to eat. I'm not saying I'm not going to be the one that says um, that this isn't poisonous or that's not poisonous. Mine eat everything and I look the other way. And they are incredibly healthy and i've never had one in all the years of having horses that has been ill because of what it's eaten on a diverse pasture but i think when you've had a horse that uh, has been only on grass you, you're going to struggle uh, really with health so yes i don't know that's a very long bottom line sorry about that no it's a great bottom line it's a great bottom line, and it, I think it gives people definitely a direction to head in for helping to bring their horses into better health. But I also enjoy it. You know, I enjoy doing it, seeing them eat the different stuff. It's, you know, mine just go out there socially to eat stuff they want to eat, and we create a diverse environment for them so the stuff can grow and it's wonderful to walk around there with them you know just looking at what they're doing and um, that's part of the pleasure huge pleasure 
Whereas when I lived in um, Shropshire on my 45 acres and my postage stamp, that that's all I could put them out on, it was a total misery, total nightmare. Every day was a, a nightmare. Come and live in Wales. <laughs> Near the sea. <laughs> yes. We can't all go and live in Wales, Carol. No, I don't. I don't. No, but it is a very beautiful part of the world. That's for sure. But yes. there, there are places everywhere, you know, where all through the UK, there will be a plant community that, that is fighting to get out again. That There will. We, we haven't gone, hopefully, too far down the line that that can't come back. Do you think, Landa? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, no, I think it depends on what people do and what we yeah. do as a species, what we do as a culture, because we're close to so many tipping points that yeah. this is only one of them. I, I learned recently that the population of frogs, I, I am in Shropshire, in fact, uh, yeah. is 10% of what it was in the 70s. Yeah. And, and when we're destroying the biodiversity to that extent, oh, yeah. when everything is dying, then everything is everything else. And, and I worry that we're very near to some very big tipping points. But if we're not... Agreed then um, you know everything that we can do to try and let the world heal itself because if the people vanish tomorrow the world would carry on just fine yeah and, yeah. and the biodiversity would return quite fast i think um so we need to stop chucking the chemicals at it we need to start treating the world as if it were our friend and not our enemy and if we can do that then i think we might still have a chance to step back from the edge but it requires an awful lot of us to start doing that quite yeah quickly so yeah I hope that was a long answer to yes, I hope you're right. No, I agreed, agreed. Well, well fingers crossed, it, you know. Yeah. I've been reading um, Isabel Tree's uh, book, Wilding, the, the, her account of the work that they've done at the Nep Estate, which is just outside of London. Mm. And it started out as intensely farmed, yeah. arable farms, and they just stopped and let the land do what it wanted to do. And, and, I, and she makes the point over and over again that if they had started out trying to conserve a particular species, yeah. they would have probably failed miserably because we don't really understand what a particular species needs. But by just letting the land go, they found that the list of insect species, birds, they have all the bats, but I think one species of bat that's native to the UK have returned to this land. And it's just been an astounding experiment. And one of the things that they were discovering is that there were species that they thought were, well, this is a, this is a species that needs woods. Well, actually, no. That's a species that we have associated with woods because their their habitat has shrunk so much that that's all they've retreated into these little pockets where they can hang on uh, just barely, but give them a more biodiverse environment, and suddenly their numbers increase, and it's just a it's it's a fascinating fascinating account so we should each be one... compulsory reading for everybody that book I think. yes yeah, yeah. yes and it's a wonderful read she writes beautifully it's 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 a it's a beautiful book and it, and you're right it should be a compulsory read and then the question that i that that i think we all have to wrap our minds around is 
Well, I have 3,500 acres. I have 35. <laughs> you know, what is the difference? She has that, that great metaphor of a Persian carpet, that if you cut it up into little pieces, each of those little pieces is no longer a Persian carpet. You have to have enough, you know, if you cut it up too much, mm. you lose the carpet. She says it more eloquently, but it was a good metaphor. And, and the question is, when I've been thinking about what can I do, what can we do as horse people, the one thing that we have as a group is we own land because our horses require land. Yeah. So unlike dogs, you know, we can have dogs in suburbia, you can have dogs in an urban environment, you can have dogs in your apartment, but our horses, we can't. So horses require certain amount of land. We, as a community, we own land, but we own postage stamps. We might have five acres or 10 acres or 30 or 100 acres, but it's still a postage stamp. But put all those postage stamps together and it becomes a significant amount of land. Yeah, no, great. And put all of these horse people who are starting to care and who are talking about it and who are modeling, well, we can make a difference. We can bring back more biodiversity. And that begins to be seeds of change. Yeah. So to me, the power is not necessarily in what happens on the 35 acres that I share with a couple other people and my horses, but collectively, you know, as all of these postage stamps are managed differently as we let the biodiversity come back into our fields, et cetera, et cetera, that that has a power for change. That's really what we're talking about because horses are everywhere. I mean, we've been uh, focusing a bit on what's going on in the UK because that's where both of you are. I'm in the US, I'm on the East Coast. So the climate that I'm in is is not that dissimilar in that it's a very green climate. Our winters are harder. We have more snow than you have. We're colder. But it's still, I you know, I can relate to the kind of horse management that you have in the UK more easily than I can relate to the kind of horse management that I might encounter in Arizona or California. But I think the principles still apply. Oh, great. The, the underlying principles. And the key in this is that, that given, I mean, there's so many horses. There's so many horses and they're everywhere. They're all over the planet. We have horse owners. And through our horses, we have, I think, a great opportunity to be engines for change. And we need to be. Write a book. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> well, we're in a sense, we're doing that through the podcasts. Yeah, it's it's a better medium for telling stories these days than expecting people to sit and write black marks yeah. and white paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't really work anymore. We can always do both. But uh, really, this is the function of the podcast is just to inspire people to get them to get us all thinking about well, what are some of the things that that we could do 
And for me, it's a real win-win-win situation because I love my horses. I want them to be healthy. So if creating a little more biodiversity, changing some of the things that I do in terms of how I've been thinking about the pastures, shifting my thinking from a beautiful pasture is this is this uh, sea of green grass and uh, with not a, a herbaceous plant in sight. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that shifting my thinking may be part of this mix and that getting a healthier horse is a win for me. Having a more biodiverse environment so that when I walk through the fields, I see more insects. I see a more, I, you know, I see the, the praying mantis and the walking sticks and all these really cool insects. And, and that when I see the grasshoppers, I don't have to go, oh, no, there are grasshoppers eating my grass. This is terrible. Oh, no. Is that what you say? <laughs> my, my, my land is full of grasshoppers. I, I... Yeah. No, I don't say it, but I know people who do. <laughs> just, well, I, but I, I love it. I just see that as a, a reward for, um, for bringing back the stuff that they like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love to sit and, and, and just watch them all. Absolutely. And, and, and because there's all of that life in the fields, there's all of that life in the air. We have the birds coming back. You know, that all of that is a win. And then if we have the additional win of it, it helps to ameliorate it, it increases some of the carbon that's being sequestered because our soils are healthier. We have more mycorrhizal fungi. We have a healthier uh, soil biome. Then that's another win. So why wouldn't we be doing this is basically what it comes down to. I think um, I'm with you on that. Why wouldn't we be doing it? But I guess there's a lot of people into horses for other reasons. Yeah, and I, I guess it's about education. Yes. Well, we're moving away from, you know, it, it depends, I think, on the community that you're in. I know that if I went out there in the great wide world of horses, that I would encounter horses whose whiskers are cut, whose, you know, the hair is trimmed away in their ears, who are wearing shoes, who have nose bands that are tightened down so the horse can't open his mouth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I also know that when I give clinics, that my clinics are filled with people who love their horses in a way that is very similar to the way that I regard and love my horses. And we, we want the best for the horses. We want the best for the planet. We just need to know to have a direction to head where what do we what can we be doing what can we be doing better or other and because if all you see are the horses with the whiskers that are trimmed you start to think oh well that's how you manage horses that's how you groom a horse i'm supposed to pull the mane and trim the whiskers and until you see another way of keeping horses, you might not know that, oh, I don't have to do that. And it's the same thing with, it's the same thing with how we manage them. And we don't have to, we can't go to the extreme of, you know, I've got my horses turned out on 
500 acres and whenever I want to interact with them, it's a day's journey just to find them. But we can have healthy horse care and still have that close proximity with our horses. And that's really, that's the balance in all things. We don't have to keep them locked in stalls, fed limited rations with next to no turnout. I think that's the saddest thing, isn't it? The saddest thing. And yet horses are very adaptable, so they can live in stalls and do pretty well. But it's not, it's not the most enriched life for them. No, I, 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 I suppose I want to say the saddest thing is it, we're contact, usually contacted by people who think that's the saddest thing, you know, that say, well, he lives a restricted life in a stable because I can't turn him out. And, and they're, they're, they're very upset about that. And um, that was never, having horses all my life, that was never something until, until I had my acres in Tropia before I went to Wales that was a problem. So, so there was a change, wasn't there, you know, with the, in, in our world of keeping and managing. So at some point, possibly 15 years ago, things started to go over that tipping point, perhaps, Amanda, that, that we were thinking, and their metabolism has changed, that they have to live a different life. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and so then we're back to the question of, what do we do? How do we bring them? Yeah. And, and what are we taking them towards? Because, you know, climate change is, is the elephant in the room. We don't know what the climate's going to be like in 10 years time. We can, we can create biodiversity for now, but will it be an adequate biodiversity for then? If we plant trees that are going to take a hundred years to grow, we don't know what the climate's going to be like when they're a hundred years old. We don't know what the climate's going to be like 10 years from now. So, um, so we just have to keep Do our best. going the best we can. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah. Trust, in, trust in whatever it is that help, has got us this far. And, yeah. and I'm hoping doesn't want to see us crash and burn. Um, and, and, and the other thing that I think we all know and don't talk about very often is that our horses are phenomenal teachers and they do actually know much more about this stuff than we do. Yeah. And if we let them teach us, then we can learn an astonishing amount. And I think I think that's one of the things that is in common with all of the people we've been talking about on this podcast, with, with the work that Alex does behaviorally, with the work that you're doing with the Equibiome, with the work that the Equicentral people are doing, is letting the horses lead us to where they need to go. And in the going there, we can find out so much about the rest of our world and ourselves. Yeah. And it's, it's about that we've said before that letting go of the ways that we think things have to be in order to let the horses teach us how they could be instead. And I think, yeah. I think that's really exciting. It's just, it's just hard sometimes. I think there's a lot to change, isn't there? Yeah. There's a lot to change. That's the thing. It just seems an enormous job. Yeah. But maybe this is the start of it. We all awesome. start somewhere, don't we? Yeah. It's certainly, is so compatible with the direction that the training is headed. So in the training, we're moving away from the command-based training, I tell you obey, to the cue-based training, which is has a real back and forth communication, where instead of telling, I'm listening. I think that's one of the great pieces that the training really is teaching us is 
listening to the horse and giving them a voice that really counts and can be heard. And we've, we're learning how to do that in the training environment. And so now what you're describing is we're also going to learn how to do that in the, their living environment of, let me give you access to the parts of the field that I may have fenced off because I thought they were full of things you shouldn't be eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what do I know? So I, certainly what I know is that when I take my horses out hand grazing, like, which I used to do more at the boarding barn, and I would look at around at the grass and I'd say, oh, that looks like a great patch of grass. Let's go over and I'll, uh, let me take you over to that. And I'd go over to this patch of grass and my horses would go, I know you mean well, but that's not really what I want to eat. Let me let me pull you over to this patch of grass. Yeah, I can see them doing it as you say. Yes, 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 absolutely. And so, you know, I'm. What do I know about picking grass and picking what what they want to eat? Clearly, not as much as a horse knows. So now it's really time to listen, and it's time we started listening not just to the horses, but to the planet itself because. The planet is telling us that we are in trouble. And if we don't change, it's going to it's going to cleanse itself of us. And that's that's not a direction any of us want to to head in. I think it's it's interesting as the first line of defense being the microbiome, as that is reduced and as that becomes less effective, and of course you're gonna have the pathogenic bacteria take over so they will do damage without doubt um, and the emerging diseases are increasing so it's interesting isn't it that it's almost that the strength of the barrier is being reduced and by reintroducing biodiversity we're going to get back that barrier of defense and it's it's fundamental to life I think yes Absolutely. Well, that's, a, I think, a good place to bring us to a, a nice conclusion, because it's certainly been a very interesting conversation. It's been an interesting of, edit. An interesting edit, yes, yes. That's you, you guys' job. That's yeah. That, that's good. Actually, I think it's I think it's going to be a very simple edit because there's a lot in there that's good food for thought and and it's all valuable. So. Yeah, I think there's so much um, more that you can go into, but you almost have to, you know, if you were going to do gut wall integrity, you could make more sense and tie that to the diet. And what we've done today is so general, but we know far we can be more specific, if that makes sense. We can hone into different areas where people can get involved in with their horse, you know, just, just thinking for the future if you wanted to do other things. You do, you do know that you've just, by saying that, you make me want to say, what, what does, so what, what does that mean? So the gut wall integrity, so what are you? But I know Manda you, knows because it's part of your report, Manda, isn't it? We, we target the bacteria that are in charge of gut wall integrity, gut wall renewal. So even that in itself, if you've got that in front of you, you can work on that to change and make the barrier stronger between what you know so the, the bad guys basically, so, so okay yeah thinking through and 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 i think 
uh, Carol, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the laminitis issues are, mm. are leaky gut issues. Yeah, yeah, and poor metabolism though. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. both yeah. Kind of, together. Yeah, I think um, it's actually it, it, it's quite scary. Some of the horses we have through. I'm, I'm only being cautious in uh, what I talk about because I don't. Sometimes you can frighten people, and that isn't why we're doing it. I think that some of it is scary without a doubt um but you still have to encourage people and get them sorting their diet out and um it's amazing what you can do when you support people we've had several that have um been struggling with the vet and shall i have the horse put down shall i not and we've supported them and that horse has actually come through and is that they're enjoying life you know and the, and the owners are absolutely enjoying the horse which is what it's about so if people want to learn more about what you're doing in the equibiome where do they go what do they what are your resources well, we've got a great facebook um page um group uh, uh why else can they go the reports are and the, and the facebook group is is equibiome yeah we've got we've got two actually we've got a page that's just kind of fluffier not not terribly hard hitting it's just where you can go to learn a little bit more and then the equibine group is goes is really involved and um we talk about bacteria we talk about case studies and we go into everything in depth and then we also have affluent malnutrition which has been running for five years um and that's about plants um, and because that's where I started from phytonutrients so um, there's loads of stuff on there I don't get as much opportunity to write on there as I'd like to but there's lots if you go back there's five years worth of stuff on there good so that gives people uh, some good research areas if they want to learn more and the website and, I mean your website is a really good resource the case studies on there are fantastic and yeah. just knowing the things that you offer that on the phytonutrient site um, yeah. So that because we were quite carefully not pushing the fact that you sell the bio things. I know we said it a couple of times, but you know, yeah. didn't want to sell well, it. I don't. I, I don't mind you taking them out. I'm not trying to um, sell anything really. It's just I think people want to know what to do, and that because we're experienced, that's what we could provide yeah. people with. But I, I think I think it wasn't as a, as obvious as it could have been, and I think that might be something that Alex could put a link in the show notes. Yes so that people know it's there because you know one of the things that you can do is take your microbiome test and send it off but you can start on some things before you get the response back i think carol yes yeah no definitely i, I mean i certainly know affluent malnutrition was very popular um and the the equibiome uh so if people want to uh have the readout how is that done they they send in a sample a manure yeah, sample yeah it's dead easy um i think well manda's done it so you, you just yeah. take a fecal sample um it goes in a little tube it goes off um it takes it does take some time to get it back we are speeding that up but it's quite a technical process and we have to have a run of 96 samples before we can make the machine go um so that takes a bit of a the turnaround is we say eight to ten weeks, but the majority we get back within four to five. I would say, Amanda, would, is that what, unless you're um, unlucky? Yeah, mine, mine, mine have been ten weeks. 
Oh, yeah, sorry, but, yeah. but it's fine it doesn't matter because you know my ponies are not safe i'm just doing it for interest so it's yeah fine. you know they were pathological i'm sure you would have told me yeah well i think we try our very best to get them back as fast as we can but it's what we're doing is we're doing it longhand so it's not generated by a computer which is actually yeah you actually have a microbiologist sat down extracting the information and the reason we're doing that is because we want the quality of information. We want to be accurate in what we're doing. If we, if some things are flagged up that we don't think are right, we ring the owner and we talk it through. And then that gets taken out of an Excel spreadsheet of which there are maybe 1500 different bacteria species. And we organize that into a report. We've just got funding to do a veterinary diagnostic system, an AI system, which will then oh. start to do it automatically. And we're working with an Australian uh, genetic company to do the same. So it's moving rapidly, um, which is fantastic. But that uh, original report, that report is is accurate because the we've done it by longhand. We haven't just... Wow. Um, well, there's, you've got those bacteria at that percentage. It might mean that or it might mean that. We've actually concentrated on the relationships between the bacteria, which are the important thing. That's impressive. And so, but that that's for people in the UK. Yeah, no, and the US. all around the world. Yeah. Anywhere you can send it, you just have to be able to send it to the US, yeah. to the UK. Okay. And, and so manure samples going through the mail do not no um, we're, it's all we've got IATA packaging so it, and UN three three seven three so um, it's it's all proper packaging it's amazing it's all, it's, all, it's 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 really high tech Alex so you should do it sometime just for the fun of doing it it's it's really interesting and it's a very high tech packaging and you think yeah you could probably send Ebola virus through this through the yeah. post and it would be safe. Not yeah. as I, well, should, I have to say, in the dogs, we, we have found the bubonic plague bacteria. <gasps> oh <my goodness. laughs> but, that's, but that's what I mean, the strength of the biome. You're not going to yeah. get rid of it, probably. Yeah. But the biome is strong enough to, to control wow. it. And that's that what it's about. So you're not, yeah. you don't want to get rid of all the pathogens. They're there for a yeah. purpose. Yeah, I think so. so we'll we'll say at this point, now that we've, we know what some of the online resources are and how people can do the equibiome. We'll thank you immensely, immensely for the time. And and hopefully this will inspire some people to go out and create more biodiverse pastures for their horses. Have fun. Have fun. And have fun with it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great. Well, we thank you immensely. Um, yeah, this is great. This is great. And oh, thank you. Yeah. And we'll, we might come uh, back and talk about gut wall integrity at some point. That would be fun too. Yes. Yeah. As we get to this. Yes. Well, there's there's clearly a huge amount to talk to uh, delve into. We've just scratched the surface of all of this, clearly. I, I um, think that's the problem. Um, it, it is it's sort of overwhelming it it's almost that you can't make it simple you, you try but there's so much underneath it's a bit like an iceberg isn't it mm. so hopefully it's been all right that people will will understand that hope it's been all right well we're not we're not trying to turn people into microbiologists we're no. just trying to, <laughs> to steer them in directions that will will produce a, a healthier outcome 
and, and always enjoy it. That's the main thing. Enjoy the journey. Now that's a great place to stop for now. Enjoy the journey. This has been a very long conversation, so I should let you go. I just have two quick announcements to make. The first is I'm going to be hosting our second Clicker Training Science Camp, May 12 through 16, 2020 at the Clicker Center. That's my home barn in upstate New York. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, and Michaela Hempen. And as a very special treat, we're going to have daily Feldenkrais sessions with Natalie von Kommenberg. The main theme for the presentations will be errorless learning and stimulus control. We'll be looking both at the theory and the practice. The resident animals will join us as teachers, which means that we're going to be using my cashmere goats as well as the horses. If you haven't worked with goats before, you are in for a treat. For more information, go to my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find the full description of the science camp, as well as all other conferences and clinics that I'll be doing in 2020. And the second announcement is that my new book, the revised version of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, is now available to order through my website. I published the original version in 2003. I've taught a lot of clinics in the intervening years, and I've got a lot more to say about all of the lessons. So when it was time to reprint the book, I decided it was time to give it a full update. You can order the book at my website, theclickercenter.com. And now all that's left to say is thank you for listening and to remind you to enjoy the journey. Bye for now.